Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. It's a pleasure, as always, to have your company. Today we have a special one-on-one with journalist Gabrielle Chan. Gabrielle's nearly 40-year career has included long stints at The Australian, The Daily Telegraph, The ABC and now as the rural and regional editor for Guardian Australia. The daughter of a Singaporean migrant, Gabrielle was working in the Canberra Press Gallery in 1996 when she met and decided to marry a sheep and wheat farmer. Moving to the small town of Hardenmarumburra, which has a population of 2,000, has greatly informed her perspective and her work. She charted the economic and cultural divide between the city and the country in the book Rusted Off, Why Country Australia is Fed Up. Now she has a new book, why we should give an F about farming, discussing just that. Gabrielle Chan, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks, Tina. So your latest book starts with a basic question. Should we care about farming? All right, well, here's a Dorothy Dixer question. Has the time come that we do care? Yes, I think the time has come. And let me just put it into some context because I think historically – You know, farmers uh, in Australia have been, uh, in a sense, over-rewarded during the protection era. And then as the deregulation era rolled out, I think we've been throwing that many people, excess baggage off the bus. Mm. We're now at a point where um, we've landed with, you know, the world worried about climate change and, and we really need to think about how we're going to manage food production in a changing landscape, in a changing climate. Well, Gabrielle, you're a journo and a very good and experienced one at that. How did you find yourself at this point writing about, writing about farms and what we put on our plates? Well, I had never expected to. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, came, I came from a city upbringing, mm-hmm. uh, a suburban Sydney upbringing, uh, into a media world uh, writing about politics. Mm-hmm. And it was only that I fell in love with the, the farmer of the book um, <laughs> that I really started thinking about this stuff. But I quickly learned that you can pull a thread of a farm and work out, to try and work out how the system works. And you're really taken into foundational philosophical questions about Mm -hmm. the way we want to um, organise our communities, the way we want to, how we value food, how we value landscape, how we integrate the whole show in order to feed um, a population with healthy food. And it surprised me actually how many 
different directions it went Mm -hmm. into and um, it was quite challenging actually to rein it in. While the general public does care about food production, it's mainly at a basic and and consumer-facing level. You know, are my eggs cage-free? Do my veggies look fresh and are they cheap? You, though, want us to think much more deeply about this. What are we missing about our food when we when we walk down our shopping aisles? So the research um, coming out of the United States is really around the way we have changed uh, how we think of food. So the younger generation, the millennial generation, my children's generation, are really thinking about food in a different way. And that is to not only to sustain themselves, but also to signal their values. So you get these food tribes now happening around the world where, you know, people identify with a certain cohort based on what they um, what they eat. And so you've got, you know, carnivores and vegetarians and vegans and paleos and gluten-free and all these different ways of um, expressing your food tribe and going deep into, you know, whatever the rules of the tribe are. So you've got that happening on one side. And then on the other side, you've got farmers who are also fracturing. You know, we're seeing a lot of angst between, say, what we think of as conventional farming um, and say, regenerative farming or organic farming or biodynamic farming. There's as many different farmer tribes as there are food tribes. And somehow we have to ameliorate climate in this whole show and and also feed populations in other countries that aren't as lucky as us. So I guess I wanted to just really look at the whole thing and say, how could we reimagine a farming system that would do what we need it to do? And first we need to work out what that is we need to do. We obviously need it to feed us. We obviously need it to look after land. And we don't often think of farmers in that way. We think of them as solely food growers. Um, We might want it to increase Uh, biodiversity Mm -hmm. or turn around the decline in biodiversity. So all of these things come at a cost Mm -hmm. and it's not covered in the price of food. So we're going to have to have a deeper think about this. Well, as we all know, uh, you know, and you reported on this at, at the beginning of your career and covered it in the intervening decades, Hawke and Keating opened up the economy and it's you know all been a miracle if you talk to the economists. But changes on that scale, of course, could never be all positive. The pain that our manufacturing sector went through has been talked about many times already. But what it did to our farmers hasn't really been discussed. So while Australia was moving to a service-based economy, what was really happening to them? What was happening to farmers? Well, I think there was a there were a lot of protections in place for farmers that came out of Australia's white history of wanting to export as much as we possibly can to back initially to the mother country, but then also to um, create income, export income for Australia. And I think when the um, reforms started happening really in the late 70s, early 80s, and particularly, as you say, under the Hawke-Keating government, there was this idea that you just, you know, fling open the curtains and pull down the ramparts and you get rid of all the boards and co-ops and and a lot of that was very clunky, you know, a lot of those bureaucracies, Mm. um, there was very small farmers, 
Uh, there were soldier, the the kind of hangover from soldier settler blocks, the hangover from all this very controlled government regulation, you know, mm-hmm. um, and somewhere in that arc of deregulation from that 80s onwards, we threw out all this excess bag- baggage, but um, I question now whether we're throwing out too much. Like how do we decide who gets to, um, say, control land? Because one of the trends I see, apart from, you know, the fact that the climate is not priced into the price of food right now. The other big trend is this kind of scaling up that really started happening in that reform era era to um, bigger and bigger farms. You know, ABES is quite clear that they say the best uh, managers are on large farms. It's the sort of 2080 rule, I think, um, you know, a a much bigger proportion than in the 70s. is produced mm-hmm. income earned and land controlled by these bigger, larger farmers. And so, you know, I think there's room for some thinking around how we want that to happen because, like, I think of the corollary in the supermarket sector. So yeah. when I was a kid in the 70s, there were lots of different supermarkets and things. Now we've settled into the duopoly. So, um, you know, I think we need to think about this because it, it sort of, Controlling land and and having these great tracts of land that Australia has, we we just need to think about it more carefully because it goes to leverage and it goes to questions of power, and I think they're really important in any democracy. So, you know, and we've touched on a little bit of this of, of how you came to to care about this issue and and farming. I'd be interested to know because obviously, you know, when you started with what was then News Limited in 1983. And you, you worked into the 90s with The Australian and then I know you went overseas for a number of years. And then you returned and, and, and worked in the, in the Canberra Press Gallery covering federal politics. But then, of course, you, you met your now husband, who you refer to as the farmer, which I love, um, and moved to this very small town of Hardamaranbara, you know, population 2000. And coming from someone who'd always, you know, lived in metropolitan cities and, and travelled around the world and, you know, had this really big, quite worldly existence... Do you think if you hadn't have made that sea change in your life to this really small you know, farming community, you would have had the, the perspective to write about how these, these small communities, what a crucial role they play in, in the much bigger fabric of our society? Oh, God, no. I don't think so. <laughs> okay. I don't think so. I think, you know, if you, everyone, perspective is everything, right? So mm. when, you, when farming underwrites your life, it's, uh, it becomes very personal as any industry does you know i'm i'm very i'm keenly interested in what happens in media and the disruption that's happened in media and i should actually say that you know farming isn't the only industry that has been disrupted over the last couple of decades um there's lots of industries that have been disrupted we've seen the mm-hmm. pretty much the death of the majority of the manufacturing sector you know the the people that lost lost jobs out of the car car factories, um, media's been disrupted. Lots of industries have, have changed massively. But I guess the, the, um, the difficulty for me for farming is that we see really contradictory messages. So that is, you know, we have to, it's a moral imperative to feed the world. 
We mm-hmm. often hear this from politicians. We have to grow more because we have to feed the world because we can't let the world starve. But at the same time, we're told, you know, food is just like any other product. It's just like the lamp on your desk or the whatever the widget is that you sell or a, or a lipstick. It's just it's a product uh, that is simply mm-hmm. created by the producers and, you know, it shouldn't be think, thought of as any different, that producers should stand on their own two feet and, and it's like any other business. But we know that food is not that. We mm-hmm. know that we can't live without food. We know that um, there are certain things in life that humans can't do without. So I think the kind of angst and the contradictions in the sector it really stem from that basic fact that, you know, you have to care about farming because you eat. And as the world cha- moves on climate change and and changes its own regulations, its trade agreements, um, its tariffs around things like carbon emissions, we have no choice but to think about how we want to manage this massive landscape with these very ancient soils and who's going to be on that land, who's going to be taking care of it. And it's a really important conversation too. I include the Indigenous um, Mm -hmm. custodians and Indigenous farmers, Indigenous rangers, like they're doing a massive job in parts of Australia that are are difficult. And, And so that sort of conversation about how the economic, how the economics covers that sort of really important job, I think, has to be thought of. Now, I will give the government a tick in that they recently pushed out the um, medium-term funding for Indigenous ranger programs, and I think that's a big step forward because mm-hmm. these things are natural systems. You can't turn them around, but, you know, and farms are similar. You know, I often hear this, uh, I remember back to SBC days, you know, and when the first iteration of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan came out, they said, oh, well, citrus isn't paying, so, you know, you've got to go into dairy, I think it was at the time. So people started ripping out citrus trees and, and, um, you know, there was this conversation as if you, well, you you pivot from citrus to dairy and then you might pivot back. But, like, those trees take years and years and years to grow. Not it's like turning the Titanic in some of these farming <laughs> natural systems. So, you know, we have to be aware of that and think more long term about these sorts of policy issues. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network, and my guest is Gabrielle Chan. Let's turn now to climate change, which you've just mentioned. We we have a perfect storm coming towards the farming sector. So, as you know, we've spoken about it's the increased demand. Let's assume we will need to eat in the future, right, and increased pressure on production. Pro- the problem is all the political discussion in, in Australia so far has been about how our electricity is is made or, or will we be forced to buy electric cars. You know, we've barely started talking about how we're going to feed ourselves Can you unpack just some of the problems we're we're going to be facing soon? Bear in mind Australia produces more than, uh, exports more than half of what we produce. So we do 
um, punch above our weight in terms of what we grow food. Mm-hmm. That's also fibre as well, I should add. So mm-hmm. it's not as um, as big as some people might suggest, but we do produce a lot of food. But the thing is we're part of an interdependent global supply chain. So say if we grow the wheat on this farm and the wheat goes to Indonesia to be made into noodles and then comes back to Australia to the supermarket shelf. Is that an Australian product or is that an Indonesian product? So some of the interdependencies have to be recognised. The other thing I think that we missed, and we had this debate for a short, sharp time at the beginning of the pandemic when the supermarket shelves cleared, Mm. and that, that was the government, you know, reassuring people that we produce a lot of food, there's no need to hoard, and I get that imperative that they had to calm the population down because we all temporarily lost our shit together. Mm. Um, But it negates to mention there are lots of dependencies in the farming sector that require imports, like most of our fuel is imported. Um, all of the widgets in our shed, pretty much the the header, the tractors, all of that stuff um, comes in from overseas. A lot of the parts that we require, uh, there's lots of interdependencies, not only in the farming system, but when you get to the food retail end, you know, the, say the Tetra Pak that the milk goes in. I mean, I might produce a lot of milk, um, I don't actually produce milk, but say I produced a lot of milk, <laughs> I can't get it to you, Tina, in your city apartment mm. because we don't produce the Tetra Pak. So I think we have to have a bit more of a sophisticated debate. And, and those sorts of products like the Tetra Pak or the canned for the tuna, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago we we just said, well, manufacturing is now thing you know, comparative advantage says we should be just producing what we do really well and really cheaply and we should just outsource the rest to the rest of the world. Well, some things, as we've discovered in the pandemic, don't work like that. So remember at the beginning of the pandemic where we had the um, uh, the shortage of hand sanitizer and mm. masks and PPE? Well, that was because we let that manufacturing um, sector go in those products and there's not easy answers in the sense that how does a government intervene for a particular thing you know down the track will we sometime in the next 30 years need PPE like no one you know it would have been hard to answer that question in the um, in terms of intervening in a specific industry mm. but surely we're bright enough to have a have a have a deep think about Okay, so what are the big sectors that we really need to um, cover our backsides with? What are the things that we should have a measure of um, independence on and then go from there? You know, there are lots of smart reports, lots of things um, that have been written that are just languishing in bottom drawers and we don't implement the recommendations. We've had 43 or so Um, reports into the Murray-Darling Basin and managing that massive water resource that is so important to both um, our food production and people's lives and animals' lives, environmental um, condition. But we just don't, we don't put it together and follow through. The political process has this kind of, I don't know, it 
chokes at the last minute mm-hmm. after the reports have been written, after the recommendations have been unveiled, it sort of goes, it just goes into this black hole of silence. Meat production is also a key discussion here, but also it provokes an instant culture war about identity. And that's before we even start about our growing export markets. What do you think needs to change there? Well, we have to uh, think about the trade-offs, right? So right now there's a, uh, a discussion about farming systems and I think most people would have seen the increasing number of articles about um, regenerative agriculture. And mm-hmm. while the definition is different in different people's eyes, um, I think there is a growing recognition that animals as part of a kind of mixed farming system are quite handy because they produce poo and um Poo and proper uh, stock management can sometimes help uh, increase mm. carbon levels, um, but of course they also animals also produce methane. So there's there's big debates happening in the farming sector about what the trade off trade offs are, and uh, I think some of the evidence that's coming out now is that straight cropping on cropping every year. Um, Means that you are mining some of the some of the um, good stuff in your soil unless you're putting it back. So, you know, can we have a debate about meat that extends into what the trade offs are in a farming system? Usually, we can't. It's just mm. like you know, if you that the stereotypical response is, oh well, you know, cl- climate's changing, therefore you've got to cut out all meat out of your diet. I mean, there is a, an argument for quality meat over just um, scale, uh, but all of these things are, you know, currently being um, thought about by scientists as well as economists, and um, and I think we've got to get some of the nuance of those trade-offs in a in a land management system across to the public, and that's what I'm hoping the book will do. Our political class and policymakers aren't really out of the starting blocks on any of this, are they? There's a few sort of nascent programs that give me heart. Yeah. Um, D- David Littleproud is working on a, uh, a biodiversity scheme as currently on, in a pilot form where, where they're trying to work out a system to verify increases in biodiversities, uh, biodiversity um, so that farmers may end up getting some sort of payment either from a private market or, a, um, or the taxpayer in return for increases in environmental condition whether it's uh, habitat or, you know, tree coverage or, and and that already happens, you know, in some of the emissions reduction schemes. But there's all these kind of sporadic hodgepodge of programs that don't connect it together. And I think the, um, the interesting thing will be how we can connect those those systems together because we're already seeing them happening overseas. You know, the United Kingdom is already thinking about how they're going to sashay. Well, they've already sashayed out of out of the EU, the European mm-hmm. Union, and um, they're going to change. The UK is going to change their production subsidies for agriculture towards a model that rewards uh, environmental services. So, mm-hmm. you know, some water quality or ground cover or tree planting or hedgerows, uh, and that sort of thing is happening around the world as as governments work out 
you know, the economic signals that they want to send have to be in line with their um, national goals. And the big national goal, obviously, leading up to the next um, climate talks is around how to ameliorate climate change. And you cannot leave the farm sector out of that debate. Mm. It's it's a really important one and it's a... It's a um, it's a debate that every country is having right now. I think it'll be very interesting to see what comes of the next conference in, in Glasgow. Um, from writing this book, do you get a feel for how our dinner plates might possibly look in the future? Yeah, I do. I think I think possibly uh, we will see a decline in meat. In we're already seeing a decline in meat consumption in Western countries, but that doesn't really tell the story of meat production. Uh, Meat prices have gone through the roof because there is global demand for meat. So as as those economies change, you know, we're going to see changes in in what consumers want to eat. Um, I I am hoping that there will be a better um, short medium and long supply chain resilience and diversity. I think what was interesting for me out of the the start of the pandemic when the shelves emptied was the run on little producers uh, in my area. You know, you couldn't get flour in your local supermarket and so the artisan um, wheat producer down the road that might be selling, you know, um, different varieties of flour or organic flour they were run over, uh, mm-hmm. and that happened. Uh, I talked to a small world bakery down in South Australia. They had the same thing happen. They got all these customers, new customers coming in, saying, actually, I want to buy it locally now because I can't get it from my big duopoly supermarket. So I'm hoping there'll be more resilience and diversity in those supply chains. Um, and from the farmer end, I think the future farmer will be someone who not only produces food and or fibre, but also is has a market for environmental services in order to turn around um, some of the, the verifiable measures in their uh, ecosystem and they will be selling those uh, services to either uh, a private sector market like a, mm-hmm. a big global company that wants to offset their emissions or whether it be part of a government program. I think that's yet to settle. But um, I think there's a lot of energy in the sector. Uh, often in this kind of current environment, um, there's a lot of angst and a lot of anxiety given the, the massive changes that we're seeing to economies to in the pandemic and to you know global trade disruptions and climate change and all these mm. things but it it doesn't really reflect the energy particularly amongst younger food producers that i see that is really kind of positive and and trying to work out where the opportunities uh, are going to come and you know the farming sector has been quite uh you know nimble in mm-hmm. some parts of it, and I think that will continue. As ill-equipped as us consumers are to understand and, and navigate the coming debates about the nature of our farms, journalists, in the same token, are they're also not really ready to have that discussion either. What's your message? You know, your quick primer to both the general public, but also to journalists. 
Well, to to go beyond the you know kind of cartoonish stereotype of how how the debate happens, which is mostly you know we have a debate a media debate on one side that is only about agriculture and mm-hmm. a debate on the other side about environment, as if the two, as if farming isn't nested in environment. Um, and and just think thinking more deeply, the need to think more deeply about you know the true cost of food. So not accepting the kind of economic paradigms that we've grown up with. Um, certainly, I have. I'm mid fifties now. Uh, it's this reforms have been happening since the eighties. Well, what we're seeing is governments having to reimagine economies. Who would have ever thought that the current federal government the people that bought you the debt and deficit disaster would owe this much money. Like (laughs) we are reinventing systems as they happen. And to try to think more broadly and deeply that, you know, you don't accept some of these things, you ask the questions. And that's what I was trying to do with the book. Like I'm not an economist, Mm. but I'm just asking questions. Like how is this going to work for food? Like if borders shut down, how is this going to work? If China turns off, you know, puts a a 70% tariff or whatever it was Mm -hmm. on on barley, how is this going to work? And I think that's what media needs, that questioning and not to accept the status quo and not to to kind of live wholly within the realms of, of power brokers but get out into the mm. into the landscape and, and talk to communities and see how it's affecting them. Your last book, Rusted Off, Why Country Australia is, is Fed Up, uh, saw you really looking at the main street of your own rural community that you yourself live in. And, and give voice to, to those, you know, to your residents that didn't really have a lobby group in Canberra. How, what are the sort of discussions that you're having with people within your own community, within the farming community? Do, do they feel properly represented, the issues that they're foreseeing, do they feel that they're being properly represented by the media? Uh, I think there's great, great frustration with the media as it sort of falls mm-hmm. into the tribes that I talked about in food and farming. And, mm-hmm. and there is... Um, there is a real hunger also for new sources of information. But but as well, there is a kind of weariness. And I guess the conversations that I have is to um, is to try and convince people to remain engaged with the political debate and the media debate because it's when people step outside of that, I think, that you know, you lower the gene pool um, yeah. <laughs> that are looking and and remaining in these kind of conversations and and diversity, economic diversity, cultural diversity. Um, they're the sorts of things we we need if we're going to um, push through to the other side, whatever the other side of of normal is. Um, and you know it's heartening that that people do think deeply and and more deeply than you think in little towns like mine. But um, I just I just would urge everyone to remain engaged because as much as it drives you up the wall and and makes you yell at televisions, yeah, um, it's really important that we that that we're involved because that's what a democracy is. I, of course, can't let you go without asking about Sky Rural and its expansion to free-to-air television in, in regional areas. Are you noticing a shift in conversation within your own community? How, how do you view it? I view it with, I guess, 
um, I'm watching it to see whether it changes the political debate. Right. Um, and particularly the after sky after dark. Mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. often get uh, sky on on my television reception mm-hmm. more easily than I can get the ABC sometimes, you know, depending on the weather. And um, I think for people who uh, probably don't have the streaming platforms, Mm -hmm. don't either have the connectivity or the the capacity for technology to um, get that massive range of streaming platforms that is now available to us, I think it it has the capacity, good good and, and, and shoddy media has the capacity to change debate. A lot, and um, so I'll be watching, I guess, to see how that rolls out in the main street. I mean, in the same, the, there is also a bit of diversity. Like I'm, I've, I've just been appointed rural and regional editor of the Guardian, mm-hmm. uh, and even though the Guardian uh, started here in in the Australian version in 2012 from the mm-hmm. UK Guardian. Um, you know, I think there is a lot of people who feel that rural and regional media is really important. Um, we lost at the beginning of our pandemic, um, Harden, my local town, mm-hmm. um, the the local paper, one of the local papers moved back and is now in a digital vo- version only, and that has implications, particularly for older populations who really want that hard copy. But the media um, landscape is changing massively Mm. and we don't really know how that's going to play out, Um, but uh, it's it's worth watching and I think you'll see new players start up, not just, you know, I call Sky a new player in the regional sense because you can get it for free now and you used to have to pay for it, but there'll be other new players that are rolling out and um, I'm hoping that the diversity remains because, as Rupert Murdoch said on Four Four Corners last week, he abhors a monopoly. Um, (laughs) I don't know if you're saying that tongue-in-cheek, but he he abhors a monopoly, so uh, I would say the same thing for rural Australia. We can't have one or two news sources. Mm. We have to be able to see local, regional and national news um, in in our towns and and regions and I think diversity is more important than ever and any control by any um, outlet I think can be a dangerous thing. Maybe he meant that he abhors any other monopoly besides uh, his own. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly is what he... <laughs> I, I, I did guffaw at the television, but... Um... <laughs> oh, don't yeah. worry. I think it was the guffaw heard around the country. Uh, <laughs> finally, climate change is a, is a topic that, that one can very quickly, quickly find themselves bogged down and, and depressed in. Do you see a positive way forward for our farms and our farmers? Yeah, I mean, I was talking before about the kind of energy in the sector when you go to um, to rural workshops or field days um, in farming and increasingly like the flavour of the day is soil. Soil's always been important, but there's I've noticed more um, soil workshops rolling out um, often from private organisations. But the younger generation of farming is really keen and and excited uh, about possibilities and, you know, you're seeing 
people changing, moving. Um, the, the example often used is Brown Brothers who moved the, um, bought a winery down in Tassie to, um, to, I guess, prepare for changes that were coming to their Victorian operations as the weather moved south for them. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there are silver linings. Uh, you just have to, I think that you just have to be really attentive um, to the changes. And I think that I, I guess what's disappointed me most about the political debate, particularly amongst um, the majority of rural and regional representation, is not uh, describing that story of climate change honestly and accurately and you know if we can't expect leaders to describe that and there are notable standouts but if we can't expect leaders to describe that honestly and accurately then it makes it really hard for communities to prepare and I guess the the thing that came out of Rusted Off was that I discovered that a lot of communities are Mm -hmm. ahead of leadership uh, in parliament and that's happening but I still don't think that should let uh, rural representatives off scot-free they they do have to have an important role to play and I hope they um, see their way their way clear to do that. Gabrielle Chan thank you so much for joining us in Fourth Estate. Thanks Tina pleasure. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. A big thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Please do stay well and stay safe and catch us next week on Fourth Estate. Thank you.